Good morning again. If you would take your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 15. Uh, before I left for holiday, we were in a series called The Heart, or The uh, Art Behind the Art. And uh, really the idea of the series is, 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 uh, is, is taking some classic pieces of art and kind of get an idea of what the artist was thinking as they were developing that piece of art. And uh, this week and next week, maybe one more week, but uh, the next three weeks, we're going to finish up this series. And today's really, the, and next week, is kind of my favorite. It has to do with Rembrandt's, the painting of the prodigal son. I'm, I'm going to spend more time talking about the painting next week, but know this as this was toward the end of Rembrandt's life that he painted this painting of the prodigal. And some historians or some art people have looked into it, researched it, and they really believe that part of the reason that he did it this way, you'll see on the cover of your bulletin or on the uh, slides, you'll see how the, there's the father, he's an old man, and he's taking care of his ravaged young son in front of him, and he has his hands on him in a very tender way. And then to the right or the left of the father, you see this elder son. And in Rembrandt's painting, they believed that he painted himself in both of these pictures because he saw himself as one who really needed to deal with his prodigal life as well as the heart and the attitude that he had of the elder son later in his life. And I want to talk about that today because a lot of times when we talk about this story, the focus is always on the prodigal son, the rebel who comes home. So let me set it up for you. We talked about this about a month and a half ago, the first two stories. It's really important to place you in the moment because Jesus is teaching, and he's going to deal with three stories that have three parts. And the verbs of the story in the opening verse really tell where Jesus is going to go with this. In verses 1, he basically says, Jesus is teaching. The sinners are gathering <laughs> And the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they're muttering. They can't even say Jesus' name. They say, this man. And what they're really saying by that is because he's gathering with these sinners, he's saying, you know what, this guy, he doesn't have any standards. In our vernacular today, they'd probably say something like, this guy's watering down the gospel. Man, he's not giving them the whole truth. He'll take anybody in. And as you begin to go through this, you're going to see that this gets just the, it gets a little more tense and it begins to ramp up as you go through. And pretty soon Jesus is going to kind of have an in their face moment. Now understand as Jesus works and walks through this, everybody's wondering what's Jesus going to do with these big religious mucky mucks, big dogs there. I mean, how is he going to respond to the criticism and the jaundiced look of all of these religious leaders. Now, some of these sinners, they're probably thinking, well, maybe he'll back down. Maybe he'll become just a little apologetic. Maybe he'll try and build some bridges. Maybe he'll back off this whole friend of sinners idea. <laughs> That's what I love about Jesus. He's not going to try and build bridges. He's going to burn them. I mean, he's just going to destroy them. And he's going to get in their grill pretty quickly. And so he doesn't back down. What does he do? Well, he takes another tact. This is the way Jesus works. This is what we love about him. He starts to tell stories. So in the first story there, uh, and, and, and he tells these stories, and the first two are really similar. 
And he says, suppose one of you had 100 sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he go after the 99? And then in verse 3, he says, once the sheep is lost, what happens? We rejoice. We have a party and we celebrate. And you've got to see all of these people that are sitting there with him go, yeah, we would do that. And then the second story, he talks about this lost coin in the house. And he says, suppose a woman has 10 coins and she loses one. She sweeps the house carefully until she finds it. And then when she finds it, what does she do? She throws a party. They celebrate and they rejoice. And what does everybody say? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's what would happen. Now here, put yourself in this story just a little bit. The sinners hear these stories. And you know what they're saying? Ah, that's me. That's me. I I was that lost sheep. I was that lost coin. Now hear what's taking place. Jesus is beginning to really show himself as the shepherd. And he's saying to these religious leaders, I'm not going to apologize at all for accepting these people. As a matter of fact, what I want you to know is that when you see these people coming to me, that in essence is the very hand of God at work. Luke 19 tells us, verse 10, that he came to seek and to save the lost. That was his mission. Pastor and writer Warren Wearsby in his commentary said this, it's easy for us today to read these parables and take their message for granted, but the people who first read them must have been shocked. Jesus was saying that God actually searches for lost sinners No wonder the scribes and Pharisees were offended. For in their place, in their legalistic theology, there was no place for a God like that. They had forgotten God had sought out Adam and Eve in the very beginning. And when they had sinned and hid from God in Genesis 3. And in spite of their supposed knowledge of the scripture, the scribes and the Pharisees forgot that God was like a father who pitied his wayward children. So you get to verse 11. And there's the introduction of this third story that really is completely different, almost completely different than the other first two. In this story, we hear about the first son, the rebel, the prodigal. He demands his inheritance from the father. He gets it. He squanders it all. He bottoms out. He's depleted soul and depleted spiritually. What does he do? He returns home. And what happens? His father embraces him. And what do they do? They rejoice. They throw a party. And they celebrate, which is what they did in the first two. This story is often called the parable of the prodigal son. And the message usually focuses on the prodigal, the first son, the rebel. But really the climax, the crux of what Jesus is getting to is found in the introduction of the second brother of the story. Now, while I, while I was away, a couple of books that I've been I've re- reading, four or five books, and two of them that really uh, give input to this message that I credit, um, Henry Nguyen, and I'll talk a little bit about him next week. He's a, he's a Dutch priest. He's passed, since passed away, but he wrote a book called The Return of the Prodigal because he was so entranced by this picture that Rembrandt did. He actually wrote a book on it. And just a lot of stuff from that book has really given me insight to this. And then one of the books that's just really bowled me over personally uh, that's helped me in this study is a book by Tim Keller called The Prodigal God. And I would recommend both of those if you want to just kind of shake up your world a little bit. But I've got to, I want to give credit to them for what I'm talking about today. So we've got the first son. He's rebelled. He's come home. The father receives him. 
Now let's look at the introduction of the second son that we very seldom hear about. Pick it up in verse 25. Verse 25, it says, Meanwhile, after all of these things have been taken place, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. Are you picking up on this theme? Joy, celebration, lost, found, return. So he called one of the servants, and he asked him, Hey, what's going on? The servant says, Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father's killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. Well, the older brother became angry. He refused to go in. So his father went out and he pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes, he comes home and you kill the fatted calf for him. Verse 31, precious words of the father. My son, the father said, you were always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. Remember the three audience groups that Jesus is teaching, the sinners, the spiritual losers and the muttering religious leaders and then Jesus as the teacher. There's a lesson here about spiritual elitism, graceless Christianity. Part of the charm, part of the joy, part of the genius of Jesus' teaching is that so often we can find ourselves identifying with the characters in his parables and stories that he's talking about. Have you ever noticed that? It's one of the really good ways to learn about yourself and to reflect with the characters that for whatever reason you're kind of drawn into or you begin to identify with. There's an old story of a Sunday school class where the Sunday school teacher, she was telling this parable to the kids and walking through it very dramatically. And finally she says to the kids, aha, there was one for whom the return of the prodigal son brought no rejoicing, no laughter, no resent, um, only resentment and only bitterness and bad times. Do you know who it was? And one of the smart little kids raised his hand and he said, yes, the fattened calf. And, uh, <laughs> and you begin to see who people identify with so well. I'll be honest with you today. I don't like this passage at this point. I, I understand the older brother in this story. I get this guy. See, I was the older brother in my family's growing up. Coming out of a lot of places, a lot of experiences, a few marriages that nobody would think that I'd probably end up where I was. Growing up, even though I had the most freedom of any of my friends, I still always sought to please my dad and to be the good son. I always sought to please people around me so that they would think well of me, that they would say, wow, he always said the right thing, did the right thing. I was probably a lot like this older brother who kind of stayed home and just sought to do the right thing. You know, I did the proper things, man. I I dated the right girls when I dated at all. Well, except for Trina when she corrupted me. Chose the right school. 
Most people would say I chose a, a worthy, a good profession. But there are times then, and I won't even go into it, but there are times even now where the outward activity of my life isn't necessarily aligned with my inward heart where it should be. Kind of like this older brother's, doing all the right things, but his heart was in all the wrong places. I get this guy. It's interesting when you cease to be the younger brother, when you're no longer the rebel, you're no longer the prodigal, you come home, and all of a sudden you make this decision to to take faith and to live obediently, seriously, in committing your life to Jesus. Can I tell you what happens? One of two things is going to happen. Either you will start becoming more like the father, or you will start becoming more like the older brother. There are churches with misguided ideas of spiritual maturity where Christians, they become cold. They become smug. They become arrogant. They know it all. They're self-righteous. They tell everybody what they need to believe and how to get off and where to get off. And if you look into the heart of the older brother, you'll see the difference between older brotherism and the true life of Christianity that is centered in the person of Jesus Christ. It is held in total juxtaposition, side by side, in these few short verses that Jesus teaches from. Here is the story. It is the climax. Everything that Jesus has been talking about and teaching about in this short uh, chapter 15 leads up to this point. It's Jesus teaching. He's talking to these sinners, the spiritual losers. But he's really trying to communicate a message to the prideful and arrogant people who perceive themselves to be righteous. He tells the story of the lost sheep and then the lost coin to begin to drill deep. And what does he say? Everything ends with being found with a party and a celebration. But now we see the big brother come in. He's coming in from outside the fields. He's heading home. He hears music. He hears dancing. And in this, this is a communal society. What is taking place here would have involved the whole village. They all knew when the prodigal left. And guess what? And we'll talk about this next week as we look at the father and his response to this. But they knew when the son came home as well. This was a public event, man. It would be a block party of the best kind. This family would have been well off because they would have killed a fattened calf for it. Now think about it. If everything was as it should be, what would have happened? The heart of this older brother would have been drawn when he begins to hear this party. His pulse would have quickened. His step would have gotten faster. And he would have what? Wanted to go inside the house to see his lost brother and embrace him just like his father. No. He doesn't. When he finds out what's happening, when he hears what's taking place, when he knows that his brother is home, Scripture says very clearly, what does he do? He gets angry. He refused to go in. He stiff arms it. And, and we begin to see here, loved ones, some attitudes that really reveal the heart, the attitudes of an older brother syndrome. And the first one you see is the heart of resentment. You see it in verse 28. See, he resented his brother for leaving and taking his stuff. 
Then he resented him for returning. Then he resented his father for receiving him. What's the result? He refuses to enter into the joy and the celebration. He simply says, you know what? I'm not going to dance. I'm not going to sing. I'm going to sit on the front porch and just let it all happen. Isn't it interesting as Jesus makes one of the main themes of Luke 15, joy, celebration. What was lost is now found. So the lost son comes home. And the father that lost this son, the village is celebrating, the son is celebrating, the father is celebrating, everybody is celebrating except one guy. The person that the father would most expect to enter in to his joy was the most joyless, his son. The father comes out and he begins to plead with his son, but the son won't go in the house adding greater insult to injury. Because see, in this culture, that son should have gone in the house and allowed the father to be sitting at the table with the guests and to celebrate. And he would have taken kind of like the head servant's role and gone around and and really been a blessing to the people to welcome them and to say, thank you for coming. You're valued for celebrating this return with us. But no, he says, "Uh -uh. uh-uh, I ain't going in. Resentment. It's interesting, resentment. When you give in to it, it really gives you kind of a sense of pleasure of rehearsing it, doesn't it? You ever notice that? What a victim. What a victim of mistreatment I am. It kind of feeds something dark in our deep soul. This older brother kind of likes sitting out there on the front porch, listening to the music, but he's not going to go inside. I'm just going to let them sing. I'm going to let them dance because none of them know how I'm the one who's being victimized here. You ever felt that? I wish I could say that I haven't, but all too recently it's happened. And it begins to feed this sense of self-righteous in this man, this self-righteous superiority that, and resentment can begin to work in each one of us this way if we're not careful. Some time ago, I read a story about the method of killing wolves in the far north of Alaska is the hunter would take a, a knife and then he would dip it in blood a few times and freeze it. And then he'd put a kind of skewer, a piece of meat on there and then he would continually dip it in blood and freeze it, dip it in blood and freeze it, dip it in blood and freeze it. And then he would sit this knife in the snow so that the wolf would come and he would, the, the, the scent of the blood would attract him and he, the, the wolf would begin to lick it and taste it and get a taste for it and pretty soon become very feverishly involved in licking it to the point where he would eat the meat, lick the blood some more, and finally begin to cut his tongue in this frenzy of eating the blood. Cut his tongue so badly, didn't even know that he was licking his own blood, ultimately to bleed to death. Resentment's kind of like that. As you start feeding on it, it begins to bleed out your own soul guess what? There's no joy. Oh, you feel good about it, but it begins to deplete all the joy in your life. There's a party going on. And what Jesus is trying to communicate to these guys, that all of those who are living in the home of grace, in the grace of his life, the grace of the cross, they're learning to let go of resentments and to live in this beautiful community called grace. I don't know, maybe today you're sitting on the front porch 
with something festering inside. Maybe somebody cheated on you. Maybe somebody did you wrong, said something about you. Maybe you had some kind of friend who dealt, you kind of feel like they dealt from the bottom of the deck, wasn't really honest and upfront with you, held up their end of the agreement. Maybe some parent didn't live up to your expectation. Maybe some child has deeply hurt you. Some friend didn't do what they said they would do. Maybe there's a group of people out there somewhere and you just don't like them. You don't like what they say. You don't like how they think. You don't like how they look. You don't like what they believe. And you're kind of savoring this resentment little by little. And you know what happens, loved ones? Is the joy and the mercy and the patience and grace will slowly be bled out of your life. You're really killing your own heart. So the question for today is, will you let it go? Will you forgive? Will you seek God's help? Will you ask Him? Will you make a decision to go into the Father's house in this place of precious, powerful grace that Jesus brings to us? Deal with the resentments. Well, second thing you see about older brotherism is Well, there's kind of a spirit of complaining. The father goes out in verse 29 to plead with his son. Won't you come into the party? Notice how the son answers. He says this, but he answered his father, look. This is amazing to me. This older brother, he doesn't even address his dad as father. And it's easy to miss this because in our culture now, our kids aren't expected to have enormous respect for their parents. But in Jesus' day, to admit a title of respect was unthinkable and was seen as a deliberate slap of, of disobedience in their face. Even when the younger rebel son says to his dad, I'm tired of waiting, I want you to die, give me my cash now, he says, Father. <laughs> but not the older brother. See, his remarks in our culture today would be like, look you, Listen, all these years, I've been working like a slave for you. I've been doing everything you've asked would be really incredibly demeaning and totally disrespectful in that culture. And the irony of his statement is, as he says this, I have never disobeyed. Really? He says this even though in this moment he is publicly humiliating his father by not being a part of the celebration of the son coming home and refusing to join the party. He says this even though he is literally being defiant and disobeying his father at this point. He says, I have never obeyed your commands. When the truth is, you know what, friends? Hear this. He's really never obeyed his father. Because true obedience comes from the heart. All he is simply doing is he understands conformity. He follows rules and regulations but he's ruled by pride and superiority, jealousy, bitterness, self-righteousness, envy, deceit, condemnation, judgmentalism, and lovelessness because he keeps the rules outwardly, but not in his heart. Can I tell you something? He is lost and farther from his father at home than his brother was when he was 100 miles away. 
And see, loved ones, it is possible to be in the house and still be really far from the Father. See, his self-assessment is this. I'm the righteous one. I'm the good boy. I do the right things. And see, it's not just his lostness that's killing him. It's his blindness. He's as lost as his brother, but he doesn't even know it. And he's not going to be happy. You know why? Because all he's going to do is complain and complain and complain. And you know what's ironic about that? Everything that his father has now will become his. Why? Well, because the younger son has taken everything that belongs to him. And you know what you realize? It's not about things. It's about the relationship with the father. And the son misses that. Think about today. There's a story. It's, I heard it's a true story. But, you know, we're so blessed to live in the 21st century, aren't we? Think about it. We go to the hospital, and there's so many things that save us. So much great technology. So much medication. So many things that help us. There's a story about this guy. He goes into the hospital. And he gets in there, and they do all this work on him, and he's, he's complaining about the pain. Then he's complaining about the bed. It doesn't feel good. He's complaining about the nurses not taking good enough care of him. He's complaining about the doctors. He's complaining about having to stay there. Finally, he gets a meal one day, and, and he starts complaining about the meal, and, he, and, he, and he's, just, he's just totally upset with it. He wants to send it back. Imagine that, hospital food. So he calls the nurse in to send it back. He goes, this potato's bad. Take it away. So she looks at him for a second, and she picks up the potato and looks at it, and she goes, bad potato, bad potato. Spank, 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 spank. It begins spanking the potato, the bad potato. Takes it away. It's amazing how we can become so complaint-oriented, isn't it? That's what this older brother lived out. See, people who live in grace tend toward gratitude. People who don't usually live in complaint. See, here's part of what's going on, I believe. This guy secretly believes his life would have been better in the distant country than having to be home with his father. And what ticks him off is that there's a celebration for the son when he could have gone and done the same thing. Can we all try something maybe tomorrow? I mean, just let's, let's set it up for one day. Maybe a little spiritual discipline. Do you think we could go one day and fast from complaining? I mean, one day? Start with one day? See how long we could make it? When you wake up in the morning until you go to sleep, when you wake up tomorrow morning until you go to sleep tomorrow night, one entire day, what about seeing if we could do it without saying one negative word? One negative word about your body, about your financial situation, about the spouse that you don't have, about the spouse that you wish you had, about the spouse that you do have, (laughs) about your pastor, nothing bad about him. (laughs) What if we did that? And every time we thought about complaining, we offered up gratitude. How many are game for taking that one on? How many of you think it's a stupid idea and are going to complain about it? <laughs> yeah, there's a few of us. I don't want to do that. I want to live in, in complaining and resentment. 
I challenge us, let's do that tomorrow. Let's see what we can do. Let's see if it changes just the way we see our day. Email me. Tell me how it goes. Write a note. I'll let you know if I can do it. Because you know what I know? I know I'm going to need God to do that. I'm going to need God's presence and Christ's power and the, and the Spirit to check me. I've already been working on it for the last few days. Second, third thing you'll see here is judgmentalism. Another attitude, you see it in verse 30, another attitude of the brother is being judgmental. In verse 30, notice the language that the brother uses when he refers to his brother, the prodigal. He says, you know, all these years I've been slaving away, never disobeyed, but you wouldn't even give me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours, talk about, talk about marginalizing. He doesn't say my brother. He says, this son of yours. That's something that would be said by an outsider of the family, your son. See, the older brother now is speaking as if he isn't even, I don't even want to be a part of this family anymore. See, judgment isn't just about pointing out what somebody else has done. Judging another is when you speak from a distance with no compassion, no desire to help. And you kind of enjoy the failure the pitfalls of another person. As this son says, but when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes. Did you notice that? See, when Jesus earlier tells about the story of the prodigal, he says he went off to a distant land and he squandered his money, spent it on everything. But Jesus never mentioned prostitutes. I wonder if the older brother was thinking, you know, if I went there, I think what I would probably do is find me some high-class hookers and, you know, and maybe kind of really let the old blow the wad there. And see, that's kind of sometimes how older brothers live. Now, they wish they could do those things, but they're too proper, and they would never let anybody know that they would do it, but it always comes out. I had a pastor friend, dear friend, who told me one time it really bothered him that people could get away with having affairs and not lose much, but pastors couldn't. And I thought, where, where does that comment come from? It was kind of speaking something that was coming out of his heart. It wasn't just a casual ha-ha comment. He was very serious about it. See, in our human condition, loved ones, in the deep depths of our heart, there's not nearly as big a difference between the rebel and the rule keeper, as we'd like to believe. Ever once in a while, you hear about a rule keeper who ends up in the ditch somewhere. You know why? It's because all those desires that they submerge and are never honest about come to fruition. Look at a lot of the TV evangelists of the past 30 years. It's interesting if you track them, the very things that they're preaching about over and over and over again are the very things that sideline them and they fall into. Why? Because, well, maybe that's a preoccupation of their heart. That's what makes older brotherism so deadly because it's what we look like on the outside but we're not dealing with on the inside. Tim Keller said it this way, it is natural for younger brothers to think older brotherness and Christianity are the same thing. What do you mean? See, we, we focus, sometimes we focus so much on behavior 
on the exterior that we don't focus and see, make sure that the, whatever change is happening out here is happening from the heart. And so we begin to teach people just to act right, but their heart never has this gravitational pull day in and day out to the person of Jesus Christ. So we act right, but we don't necessarily grow in our love for Jesus and others. And then we begin to look at people, judge, we resent. There's also the last thing you'll notice about the older brotherism is that often there's a self-focus. Following Jesus is and should always be full of grace. The truth about me, loved ones, is I don't need grace just when I came to Jesus, but I need his grace every moment of my life. The older I get, the more I know, the greater propensity I have to become an older brother in so many ways. And if I don't have his grace at work in me, I will move, oh, so quickly toward being an elder brother. And one of the things you can see in the older brothers, what is he doing? He's talking about me, 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 me. I didn't get, you didn't give. How come I? Why shouldn't? And sometimes when we begin to focus on ourselves and, and those things that happen to us, we lose the focus of Jesus and his grace. And the older brother doesn't even know that he's the one that needs the grace. He's so stuck in all of his pride, and it's simply sucking every vestige of joy out of his life. Well, then verse 31, the father goes out. What does he do? He's pleading with his son. He says, and he, he just wants him to come inside and be a part of the party. But the son, what does he do? He totally rejects it. And what's so powerful is the father, it says there in verse 31, my son. In this day, listen, the father was the man. He doesn't go plead with his kids. He says, you do it. But we see him, he goes out, he almost acts like a servant pleading with his son. And he uses this powerful word, my son. Usually when the word son is used, it's the, it's the word huios, which has to do with an older son. But here he uses the word technon, my child, my little child, very endearing. And he says, you're always at home with me. Everything that I've had is yours. It will be yours. This is just kind of a little foreshadowing, loved ones, of the cross of grace because Jesus pays this enormous price to extend grace to his lost, wayward, blind, self-righteous, self-indulged, angry kids. And Jesus says to him in this story, don't you realize you live at home with me? Everything I've been offering this year is not about the goods. It's not about the good life. It's about me. Now, this father is infinitely gracious, yet definitely firm. You know why? He says, I will not stop the party. It's as if Jesus is saying, you know what? I've lived in sorrow over a lost son about this father. I've lived in sorrow over this lost son. Now I have to have him back. Must I lose another? But even at the thought of losing the other, he says, the party's not going to stop. You're just going to miss it. 
Now get this. There's silence. I can just see Jesus looking around at these people. We're at the climax, at the dramatic point. They're waiting to hear and see what is going to happen next. Some of them are filled with joy. Listen to Jesus. I love it. They're thinking. He's telling them these stories, and they're saying it. He's saying it about me. I'm a lost sheep. I'm a lost coin. Woohoo! Somebody else is thinking, oh, I'm that lost boy. It's time to come home. Jesus loves me. And then there's other listeners that are what? Silently. You could read it on their face. They're ready to get up and kill him. They're all waiting to see what happens next. What's the older brother going to do? How does the story end? Well, Jesus says this. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. Period. That's an unusual ending. Why? Because it's not like our 30-minute sitcoms or our Hollywood two-hour movies that give us, bow it up and tie it and give us the answer. No, period. He says nothing else. It's an unusual ending to a story that is so packed with drama, so filled with emotional pathos. Why doesn't he finish the story? Did he run out of things to go, wow, I don't know how to finish this thing? No. Because everybody is listening, and you know what? Everybody has to decide how it ends because it's not about Jesus. It's about me. It's about you. You an older brother? Are you a prodigal? Are you the father? It really has a couple of ways to end. Either the older brother turns around from his father, he returns to the field to work in coldness and bitterness of heart for the rest of his life. He begins to grow in his hatred and resentment toward his father and toward his brother, and he begins to build up his case to say, I have every right and every reason to resent this situation, and ultimately he dies alone with a broken heart. Or maybe it could end like this. The older brother falls on his knees. His hard heart becomes broken and he asks his daddy, would you please forgive me, take me back again. And he runs into the house and he sees this skinny, dirty figure of a brother. He remembered how they grew up together, how they played, how they fought, how they loved each other, how he brought his brother up, how he protected him, how he loved him, how he took care of him, how he led him. And then he goes in and he remembers that. And in the midst of smelling like pig slop and poop, he throws his arms around him and he braces him just like his father, knowing they would never be apart again, but they would celebrate and party together on and on and on. How does the story end? Jesus never says. I think the key we all got to remember, loved ones, is the prodigal and the older son. Each one of them have to decide to come back into the house 
and join the party. And you can only do that when you're living in the climate and the power and the life and the grace of Jesus Christ. And give up, give over, and release your resentments, your pride, your spiritual smugness, your ability to see yourself up here, people down here. That's what Jesus is communicating. Period.